Actually, uh, the gratitude is mine uh, for the privilege of opening God's Word. It is an awesome uh, responsibility and one that I do not hold lightly. Uh, I'd ask Kurt in his pastoral prayer to pray for several things. One, uh, for accuracy. I think the scary thing about opening God's Word is a fear of saying something that's just not true. And in do, doing so, leading people astray in their, in their thoughts. And so we pray that God would protect us and help us to be accurate. And then, of course, he did pray that there would be a clarity. Uh, I'm one of those shotgun preachers who just kind of scatters things out there. And uh, if we could just kind of hone it down, put the little choke on it and uh, fine-tune it, God will have to do that for us. Uh, I'm not don't have that kind of mind, but that we'd be accurate and we would be concise um, and that we would uh, be brief. But finally, that most importantly of all, that as we've come together this morning, that uh, not for our glory, but for our edification and for our building up, that it would be a sermon that's brought in the power of the Holy Spirit. For if we do this in our own flesh and by our own strength and our own wisdom and our own cunning, and, uh, then it's totally worthless. Even as hearers, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to illumine us and open our eyes, we should come hungry and thirsty for the Word of God. And so I thank you for this privilege. Uh, I don't think there's any or much greater joy than to, as some people say, to brag on Jesus to lift him up, to magnify his name. I don't mean just to spout out so many platitudes, but as we look into his word, uh, that the Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us and show us through this word, by the Holy Spirit, who this Jesus is. So we're still in the book of John, and we're in chapter 4. And I'm going to read briefly, beginning uh, <clears throat> in this book. It says, Jesus said to her, no, excuse me. I've got the bulletin in front of me. All right. Background, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. If you will remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was John's disciples who were coming and they were concerned and, and approaching John about the fact that Jesus' disciples were baptizing and everybody was going after Jesus. And we won't re-preach that sermon, but John simply says, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not the Christ, I'm the forerunner. I have come to present Christ to you. So then it continues, and as he passed through Samaria, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. 
in parenthesis, for Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from him himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor have to come here to draw water. That's a question, easy answer. What day are we celebrating? Oh, that's a trick question. No answer. <laughs> of course, we're celebrating Easter. Without separation, I would like to distinguish three aspects of this celebration. First, there is the day, a point in time in which we set aside to celebrate. Second, there is an event that took place on this day, the resurrection, a day of infamy, the person is the third thing that's involved. So we have the day, we have the events of the day, and then we have the person of the day. I'm going to discuss briefly the first two. The day, the Lord himself assigned days that children of Israel to, were to celebrate. Perhaps you've heard sermons where the preacher belittles Easter or Christmas or holidays, but God himself in the history of Israel's established celebrations and feasts. Uh, in Leviticus, we find this, and he begins with a particular day, the seventh day, and we read, Six days shall we work be done, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. And mark this, a holy convocation. This is when the children of Israel would come together uh, at that time to the tabernacle, later to the temple. And of course, we gather to this morning as the temple, believers in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. It's a holy convocation, and we shall do no work or ordinary work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling place. And it continues with the 14th day. If we were reading in Leviticus, you would see with the celebration of the Passover. This year, it fell on this past Wednesday, if you were paying attention. And so we're, I'll just leave it there. For believers, there was a shift of emphasis from the day of the Paschal sacrifice to the first day of the week. I'm talking about the early church. It was a shift from the Jewish Sabbath to the Lord's day or the first day of the week. I think we've already been referenced. We worship the resurrection today on Easter, but we we celebrate the resurrection of Christ by meeting on the first day of the week, the day of his resurrection. The, the Jewish Sabbath had become the Lord's day. Some refer to it, or this, excuse me, the Jewish Sabbath became the Lord's day or the first day of the week. 
Some refer to it as the Christian Sabbath. Some of our brethren are called Sabbatarians. They place more emphasis on it or a different emphasis than perhaps we do. The first designation sets it apart as a day of special emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. For the early church, it was a constant and a continuous reminder of the day of Christ's resurrection, the first day of the week. This past week, or Wednesday evening, Jewish families around the world came together, not only as families, but as communities for the Paschal meal. The word Easter is found only once in the New Testament and then only in the King James Version. If you look into the, to, to the Aramaic, you'll see that it's Pesach. It's, it's referring to the Passover. And it's at the time of Passover, if we go back a chapter or two, that Jesus is at the temple. And he's uh, challenged to show a, a sign. So it's all associated with the Passover. Now, it's been my privilege to celebrate the Passover with Jewish families. I'm not talking about Messianic families. I'm talking about Jewish families. Uh, it was my observation that the emphasis through the telling of the story was one of deliverance from Egypt. And, of course, many new meetings have been applied to it in different Jewish circles. It was a time of family and a national communion as dramatic and as horrifying as the original night was, as the death angel passed through Egypt, taking the lives of many firstborn, in our celebration, it was a joy and a time of a communal meal. Why? Because the blood of the Paschal Lamb was applied to the doorpost. In all of my celebrations, or the couple of celebrations I had with Jewish families, what I do not recall was a solemn recognition that a life was taken, that those covered by its blood might live. Perhaps originally at the first Passover, in the selection of the Passover lamb, the benefactors in Egypt might have respectively chosen, handled, and slit the throat with tears of appreciation so that the blood might be applied to the doorposts and the firstborn might live. Yes, the Passover was and still is full of meaning. It pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 13, John marks what is called the upper room discourse with the fact that it was a Passover. It was the beginning of the week of passion when Christ would indeed take his place on the cross as our Passover Lamb. So we have the day, Passover, and then we have, or Easter if you would, the day of resurrection, the first day of the week. Then there's the event. We recall that on Good Friday at the same time as the evening sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God was slain, laid in a borrowed tomb, sealed with a large, tomb, a large stone, his body lay in anticipation for the ultimate liberation and the ultimate conquest. Three days earlier, through the act of Roman, Roman crucifixion, the lifeblood of the Christ, the Son of God, had been drained. He was declared dead. It was a day of infamy. And yet, early on the third day, the Christ, the Son of God, reclaimed the life <clears throat> and broke free from the chains of death. 
walking in the early dawn, leaving an empty tomb. What men had meant for evil, God had meant for good. We could speak volumes as to the reason and the necessity of both the crucifixion and the necessity of the resurrection. We could speak to the sufficiency and the success of these events. What we save that for is another day. We could speak of the significance throughout the epistles of Paul of the resurrection. We've already made reference to it. Uh, I know at first 10th prayers today, Liam Gallagher is preaching from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, wonderful resurrection chapter. We include it in our <coughs> assurance of pardon. But Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, the might of the creator, the might of the God of the universe, that he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Paul again reminds the church at Rome what took place in the death and the resurrection and our union with it. Paul asked in his letter to the church of Rome, and we might ask ourselves again this morning, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? I know you've heard these words. Are we cognizant? Do they resonate with us? This is the reality of who we are as believers, that we have been united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so his death becomes our death. And then he continues. <clears throat> we're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptizing into death. That's not the end. <laughs> In order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the <clears throat> glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That word life is central to the resurrection. It's central to our text today. <clears throat> but a newness of life, a refreshing. For if we, had been, if we have been united with him in death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, Egypt is a picture of the world. The children of Israel, the children of God were in bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. And God, through the redemption and through the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb, rescued them and brought them out. Then finally, in Romans 6, we read, For one who has died has, for one who has, died has been set free from sin. That is a reality. It's not a reality that we can see. It's not a reality that too often we're experienced. In fact, if anything, our confession is that we're in bondage to sin because we sin so frequently and so willingly. But brothers and sisters, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been set free. The wonder is, yes, we do sin, but we no longer have to sin. 
He has given us, and that's the reason he prays, that I might know, Paul says for himself, the apostle prays, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That should be our prayer every morning. Lord, that I might know you, and that I might know and experience the power of your resurrection. So, we have and should speak concerning this day. In light of, the, of that glorious day, and we should recognize and appreciate the glorious event of the resurrection with its accomplishments. For as even in our assurance of pardon, we know that because Christ indeed is risen from the dead, we are not to be pitied for our hope as if it in this life only. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And I've said so many times, and I'll drive it home, this experience of life in Christ is not a life that has to be deferred. It is a life that we should experience and enjoy every day. So we have the day, Easter, a day set aside to commemorate the Lord's Day when we should and often do recognize the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have talked about the events, the sufficiency, the necessity, the power that comes in the resurrection that is applicable to us in our day-to-day -day lives as the life of Christ is applied to us. And so this is it. We have briefly discussed the day and the event. Now I want us to turn to the person of the day and the person of the event. In the providence of God, we have found ourselves walking through John's gospel. Today, we find ourselves in chapter 4, which has been entitled, and if you look, you perhaps see it in your pew Bible, The Woman at the Well. You may be asking yourself, how can you preach an Easter message from an account of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well? Well, to be honest, I ask that question of myself. What makes it possible is the unity of the scriptures. I wish I had about two days to sit here and talk about the joy of, as I've studied this past week to see the unity of the scriptures from the first chapter to the second chapter to the third chapter to the fourth chapter and it will continue through the end of the book. What makes it possible is the unity of the scriptures through numerous stories, one meta-story, one large grand story unfolds. It's the story of redemption and restoration. <clears throat> Oftentimes, well, it's a story of redemption and restoration. That is the end goal. That is the purpose of redemption, that we might be restored to that place that we were created to be. It's a story of death and resurrection. I asked someone, actually yesterday, what is the resurrection? We were talking about these things and they said the gospel. Well, you can't argue with that answer. I said, yes, the gospel. But I looked it up and this is what I found. Resurrection or anastasis is the concept of coming back to life from death. We have a lot of concepts about the Christian experience, what it means to be born again. 
But in the simplest terms, it is one who was dead in their trespasses and sin, cut off from the source of all life, to being restored by the work of Christ on the cross in his death and his resurrection, as that is applied to us by the Holy Spirit in faith and regeneration. Or we have experienced already resurrection life. Christ lingers and we die. Our hope is in another day when these bodies will be resurrected. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin have been quickened. We have been made alive. Now let's return to our text and we'll take just a few minutes to go through it again. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And I want you to mark these two words right here. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. What's the significance of Jesus was wearied <clears throat> from his journey? It simply points to the fact that he was an ordinary man, yet without sin. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Again, it points to his humanity. He, he grew tired. He grew thirsty. He grew weary. He grew discouraged. He became disheartened about his disciples who he had been with, and yet they still did not know him. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered, If you knew, and I've got this highlighted, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would, ask, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And then she asked him, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, the answer we know, 2,000 years, yes, he's greater than Jacob. He called Jacob out of idolatry. He, he took this supplanter and made him a prince and blessed him with the blessings and the promises that he had given to his <coughs> grandfather Abraham. Not only did he bless him and call him, but he created him. He gave his life. He wrestled with him. Uh, we could just go on about the life of Jacob and how God dealt with him so graciously in his life. And not only that, he created uh, the, the region of the Middle East. He created Palestine. He created uh, the Middle East and Europe and Asia and the world and all of the oceans around the world. Yes, he was greater than Jacob. <clears throat> so in so many ways, it's an or this story is ordinary. What is, this, what is the story, what in the story is unordinary? We've said that Jesus is an ordinary man, thirst and hunger. <clears throat> and then we want to look at what is extraordinary. On the surface, the set of events seem so ordinary in this culture, uh, and yet, Jesus immediately does that which is not ordinary. He asks a woman of Samaria for a drink of water. 
And then he begins to talk of that which is extraordinary. At the beginning of chapter 1, here's a shotgun approach here. But I want to tie the scriptures in together. This, this is not an isolated text without meaning and connection which has gone on before. At the beginning of chapter 1, we're told that Jesus created all things and in him is life. You have to get, in him is life. Apart from him, there is no life. You can't have life without him. So the question is, this morning, do we have him? Not a set of theories, not a set of principles, not a set of doctrines, but do we have the living Christ as our Lord and Savior? In the middle of the chapter, John the Baptist proclaims him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the end of chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathanael sitting under a fig tree before he saw him with his physical eyes. And then when Nathanael approached Jesus, he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, the first thing, what does that tell us? It tells us something about Nathanael, right? I don't think that's the purpose of including this in here. What it tells us is something about Jesus. He saw him, and mark this, he knew him. It's going to be throughout the scriptures. Christ knowing his own, the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I call them by name. And here he's demonstrating that he knew Nathaniel. We find the answer. <clears throat> well, the question is, what does this tell us about Jesus? We find the answer at the end of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He still knows all people. You know, you know what I'm saying? He knows you. He knows me. Like the psalmist says, he knows when we rise up. He knows when we sit down. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows us intimately. And if we're a sheep, he knows us very intimately. For he has laid down his life for his sheep. It says, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. If you remember, we stated the rest of Jesus' ministry individually and collectively when he was speaking to groups would be a concealing and a revealing of himself. There were times when he said, don't tell anybody what's going on here. He was concealing for his hour had not yet come. I don't understand all the ramifications. But then there are other times when he reveals himself. <clears throat> In chapter 3, in chapter 3, we have the story of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. And he was a teacher in Israel. You know, Jesus the king proclaimed to him the necessity of the new birth or to being born from above. Nicodemus, most ordinarily, in a most ordinary way, says, how can this be? Naturally. He didn't understand what Jesus was saying. <clears throat> It reveals Nicodemus's earthly outlook. And Jesus pointed to the fact that you, being a teacher of Israel, should have a heavenly out 
book, and he's pointing back to Ezekiel's prophecy. Ending chapter 3, John explains to us what is going on. With spirit-illumined eyes, I'm talking about John, he recognizes Jesus as the Christ and proclaims, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. There he tells his disciples, I'm just a forerunner. I am not the Christ. Time and time again, I'm not the Christ, but I'm pointing to the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God. This is followed by the profound statement in John 3, the last of the chapter. He who comes from above is above all things. And this is his, this is his resurrection day. What I'm saying here is connected in the fact that this is he who was resurrection, resurrected. He comes from above and is above all. He who is on the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. We've already had an example of this in Nicodemus. He who comes from above is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Let me just make this clear in some of these chapters. Oftentimes John is talking in a broad and a general way because we know that there were those who would receive. He's speaking in general terms. Uh, broad is the way. And few are the ones who find the way, but there are those to whom he reveals himself. He says, whoever, he says, <laughs> he says, no one receives his testimony, but then right after that he says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And this is what illumination is this is what regeneration is this is the sovereign work of God and the Holy Spirit and the Son in concert with each other in these many encounters that we will see through the book of John so the closing words of John 2 he needed no one to bear witness about man combined with the closing words of John 3 he is from above and bears witness to what he has seen and gives the spirit without measure, sets the stage as John continues. That's a long introduction. Okay, well, the end is conclusion is briefer, I hope. Okay. That brings us back to the story of the woman of the well. And, of course, Jesus tells her, I'll give you water and you'll never thirst again. She answers in an earthly and ordinary way. This well is deep. You have no bucket. You can't draw but give me this water so I won't have to come back and draw again. It's, it, sounds like a, it sounds like a good deal. Jesus knew what was in her. And he needed no man to bear witness about this woman. For he himself knew what was in her. And this is borne out in his next conversation with her. When he tells her to go get her husband. And, of course, you know the story. If you don't know the story, Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, well, I, I'm not married. Uh, yeah, well, you've had seven men, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And, of course, obviously she's dumbfounded, and she makes the proclamation, well, you must be a prophet. And uh, when the, he says, we worship on this mountain, and you Jews worship on that mountain over there. And then right in the middle of this dialogue, Jesus breaks in and he says, the time is coming, and mark this, and now is 
when God will seek those, the Father will seek those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Not in this mountain, not in that mountain over there, but will worship him in spirit and in truth. You cannot worship. And that's the reason we're created. That's the reason we're here on earth. People don't recognize it, but they were created, Adam and Eve were created to be worshipers of the eternal God. We have just a foretaste of it. It's one of our hymns, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. On a Sunday morning when we gather together or on a Wednesday night or one-on-one or -on -one when we're talking about the things of the Lord, it's a foretaste of glory divine. Oh, when the conversation and the view and the vision is not in a glass dimly, but it's face-to-face. -face. And those things that we speak of with longing and, and appreciation today are a, a new reality and our bodies are changed and the world around us is changed. And we can worship the one that we're talking about, the resurrected Christ, face to face. Well, what is this life-giving water that he was promising her? <clears throat> In Jeremiah 2, 11 and 13, God is, through the prophet, speaking to a nation who has sought other gods, the nations around them. And he says this, has a nation changed its gods even those that are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. And here, they have forsaken me. They walk the courts, they tread the courts, they bring their sacrifices, and yet they have forsaken me. In fact, in the first chapter of Isaiah says, they don't know me. They're without knowledge of me. They have forsaken me, and here it is. He is the fountain of living waters. That's why I had to sing that, come thy fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace, thy praise. <clears throat> my people have changed their glory for what is not profit. They have hewed for themselves cisterns, <clears throat> broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Living water, really, in the, in, the, in, the, in the truest sense of literally what he's talking about, is a spring or an artesian well. That which is just springs forth and stands forth. I, I share this briefly, this experience. When I was in Israel, we went to the Dead Sea. And you know, the waters start on Mount Hermon, then they come down the Jordan Valley through the uh, Sea of uh, Galilee, and then they end up in this cesspool. All of the chemicals and all of the minerals and all of the things collect. There's no exit. It's, it's a dead, stagnant pool. And uh, when you go swimming in it, the, the closest example I can give is like swimming in fertilizer. In fact, they have a fertilizer plant where they pull out the phosphates and the phosphorus and they make, they make fertilizer. And so we were there and we were swimming and uh, I got out and there was no shower, and there was no way to rinse this fertilizer off. But across the road, we were on a trip, across the road, as we went up, up in the mountains, up this valley, up this ravine, we went up to Engedi. And I'll never forget the experience. It was just so poignant to me. It was like these long, longing arms beckoning me forward. And when I got up there, I was able to bathe in the waters of Engedi. A waterfall just flowing and flowing and flowing. No stagnation there. Actually, it was flowing into the dead 
see. And that's the promise of Christ. He is life himself. The grave could not hold him. Death could not hold him. And it cannot hold us who have put our faith in him. It is possible, or is it possible, I would ask this morning, for us to forsake the fountain of living waters? Is it possible for us to hew out cisterns that can hold no water? If it was possible for Israel, it's possible for us. The danger of exchanging the rituals of feasts and days was very real, and Paul addressed it, the dangers of it in the church at Colossae. How easy it is for us to turn from the finished crosswork stamped, accomplished by the resurrection to perpetual self-effort. How easy it is for us to find ourselves busy with many things, many good things, many useful things, many helpful things, forsaking, as Jesus told Martha, the better part. And there was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Vivian told me this morning that she was watching a sermon. I can't remember. Anyhow, it doesn't matter, Derek Thomas or somebody. But on the pulpit right in front of it, it says, looking unto Jesus. Uh, that's what we have come for this morning. Yes, we celebrate the day, the resurrection, the glorious resurrection. The first day of the week where we're reminded that Christ was raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. That is our hope as believers. But more importantly, we come this morning asking the Holy Spirit to show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And in doing so, creating within us a greater love and appreciation, a joy that cannot be surpassed. By way of invitation, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you without money come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of food. Chapter six, okay, I could go on. <laughs> chapter six, he's got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. In chapter seven, he talks about I'm the source of living waters and he's talking about pouring out the Holy Spirit. Already, he pours it out with a measure. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we can delight in our worship of him. And as we go out into this world and live in this world and rub shoulders with the world, we can carry in our hearts the glory and the power of the resurrection, knowing that, yes, I'm here. He's placed me here. But he's coming again to receive me unto himself. There I will forever dwell with the Lord. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your love to us this morning. We thank you for your care and guidance. Now we pray that which is true might be sealed up in our hearts and that you would use the doxology of our hearts to create in us a devotion that serves you in both spirit and truth. We ask this to the praise of your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.